everybody. <clears throat> I'm Seth. I'm the intern here at Northwest, and I'm excited to be up here this morning leading worship and for the first time ever preaching a sermon. Don't all of you applaud all at once. <laughs> Thanks. Have you ever had a friend who did something incredibly dumb while you just kind of sat by rolling your eyes? My buddy told me this story a while ago. He said he was in the library during a free period with his friends, and they were all super bored. I don't really remember how the, the situation presented itself exactly, but for some reason, his friends decided to give him a dare. Now, I'm still pretty young, but I think I can confidently say that nothing good can follow the phrase, I dare you to. <laughs> anyway, his friends decided to dare him to put a paperclip into an outlet. Now, before you freak out, nobody died. <clears throat> but I totally agree with you. It's a terrible idea, right? But did that stop this friend of mine? Nope. <laughs> he wrapped the paperclip in a piece of paper so that it wouldn't shock him and then stuck it into an outlet in the corner. And would you believe it? The paperclip shot off a spark and burnt a hole in the library carpet. <laughs> now, fortunately, this story doesn't end nearly as bad as it could have. And you might guess that the entire time he was telling me this story... I was just kind of staring at him with my eyes wide and my jaw dropped, with only one thought on my mind. Why on earth would you do that? And I often wonder if that's what God is thinking when he's watching us. When we splurge and spend too much money, or we go out with a group of friends that we know is no good for us, or we waste all of our time playing video games or scrolling through social media, and then we're left with no time to write our essay that's due at midnight, which is a situation that's definitely not personal to me. <laughs> I think that God often asks himself the question, now why on earth are they doing that? And honestly, I think that's a justifiable response. I like to imagine that God kind of watches our lives like a reality TV show. But I also don't think that he just sits back and lets whatever happen, happen. I mean, if you had the power to interject in any given episode of the Kardashians, wouldn't you want to go talk some sense into those people? I would. And I've come to discover that there are a couple of ways that God likes to, to interject in our lives. Sometimes he uses his word and sends us a specific scripture, or maybe he uses his Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, maybe during worship. Maybe he sends someone to provide counsel or teach us a lesson, an important teacher or mentor. One of the ways I've noticed that God likes to interject in my life is by sending me little reminders to watch myself. The other day, I made muffins to go with our dinner, <clears throat> and I was really proud of myself when I took them out of the oven. They looked delicious, they were all evenly sized, and the chocolate chips were melty and gooey, and I was so excited to eat them. They looked so good. But lo and behold, upon biting into these gorgeous muffins, my family and I made a discovery. We discovered that Seth is not very careful when it comes to reading labels in the spice basket. <laughs> and unfortunately, cumin is not a very effective substitute for cinnamon. <laughs> so as my dad tossed my poor muffins into the garbage, 
I thought to myself that that was a pretty clever way for God to remind me to be a little bit more observant, something that I'm not always very good at being. You see, God is a truthful God. He doesn't withhold information from us because he thinks it will hurt our feelings. Just like when my mother bit into her muffin and looked me dead in the eyes and said, it tastes like feet. (laughs) He gave us the Ten Commandments to list the things we aren't supposed to do. And he gives us countless examples of what can happen if we disobey. We like to think that truth and grace are two separate entities. We think that to be graceful towards others, we have to sacrifice the facts that might ruffle some feathers. We might even ignore the sins of those that we love in order to forgive them. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, we often also withhold grace when pointing out the truth of someone else's sins. Now, the idea of graceless truth is more relevant in Jonah than possibly anywhere else in the Bible. The story of Jonah follows this prophet who was totally scared out of his mind to speak God's word of warning to the people of a city overrun with hate and sin. He knows what the people of Nineveh are capable of, and rather than being filled with the desire to show them the Lord's grace, he runs away because he's afraid of what they might do to him. But I'd like to ask the question, was Jonah scared of the Ninevites, or was he more angry with them? And I think fear was a big part of his motivation to run, but it also seems to me like Jonah isn't super fond of the idea of showing these people grace. Jonah 1, 1 through 3 says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So God gives Jonah this message of grace and truth to bring to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah, knowing what the people there are like, says, no. Jonah recognizes the truth of the sins that the people in Nineveh have been committing. But his fear response is grounded in active refusal to show them grace. And as we know, the idea of refusing to people, the grace of the Lord, does not sit well with God. In fact, he lets the next few events play out to lead Jonah back to the city of Nineveh. And he sends a giant storm to toss Jonah's boat around a little bit. And not only that, but when Jonah continues to refuse, he lets himself get thrown overboard and God has a giant fish swallow him whole. But we know that this story has a happy ending, at least as far as a happy ending for this story could go. But why? Why why does it have a uh, happy ending? Because Jonah realizes his mistake and prays to God, confessing his mess up and proclaiming that he will fulfill his purpose. Jonah 2, 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. And I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. And then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned on the earth, whose gates shut lock forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. 
As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the, spit, the, ooh, the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. So God sets the example moving forward for Jonah to follow when he delivers his message to the Ninevites. He saves him from the belly of this big fish, and he's like, Look, dude, I just made a giant fish swallow you whole and spit you back out, and you're completely unharmed. That's grace. Now it's your turn. But Jonah's refusal of grace doesn't end here. Now, personally, if I just spent three days and three nights inside of a whale, I would probably notice God's response of grace and realize that I should be more like that. I can't say that for sure because I never have spent three days and three nights inside of a fish. But if I had to guess, I would probably say, okay, God, I got it now. I'm going to try to be more like you and show the people of Nineveh some forgiveness. But Jonah, like we often are in our own lives, is still pretty oblivious. What happens here is that Jonah witnesses firsthand for the second time within the span of four chapters God's devotion to grace. Now, God saves the Ninevites, but this time, since the grace is not directed towards Jonah, he's not nearly as quick to feel gratefulness towards God's gracefulness. And in a fit of rage, Jonah actually tells God that he would rather die than watch him forgive the Ninevites. And so, to prove a point, God sends Jonah a reminder of what his grace really means. As Jonah throws himself a pity party, God makes a leafy plant grow beside him to shield him from the heat of the sun. He also makes a worm that begins to devour the plant overnight while Jonah's asleep. So when Jonah wakes up, there's no more plant. And now Jonah's all upset again because in this, it's in this, but, whoa, but it's in this moment that God reveals to him the purpose of the plant that he put there. Jonah 4, 9 through 10 says, Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. (laughs) Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant even though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quietly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Boom. That's the end. And Jonah's like, no way. And God's like, Yahweh. (laughs) Yeah. God sends Jonah one of those little reminders that we sometimes notice him sending us. God directly shows Jonah why he still cares about Nineveh. He says, look at this tree. It's awesome because it's giving you shade from the 130 degree heat, right? Well, how do you like it now? I'm taking the tree away. And then he says, I care more about Nineveh than you cared about that tree because I made Nineveh and all of the people inside. God doesn't want to just sit by and let us corrupt ourselves. He wants us to step in and, yes, explain why what we're doing is wrong, but then also show us grace for our actions. Jonah wanted truthful God, and God showed up graceful God. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Truth without grace is going to bring shame and guilt 
and lead to opposition. But too much grace and not enough truth is a problem too, believe it or not. Now, the Bible doesn't really have a great example of truthless grace. But I assure you, we see this concept play out in our lives and the lives around us every single day. And oh, do I have the perfect example of someone with maybe a little too much grace. I bet not many of you knew knew this, but my dad, Scott, over there, has an alter ego. Every time we go on vacation, his secret identity comes out. You know him as Scott on vacation, but those of us who live with him know him as Vacation Dad. There he is. Now, Vacation Dad is awesome. My siblings and I all know with utmost confidence that the minute we get in the car to leave for our trip, we will be stopping at Dunkin' Donuts. We know that we will be spending a small fortune on souvenirs that nobody knew they needed. And we know that we are going to end at least two of our nights with ice cream for dinner. And it is glorious. Let me show you a few examples of what this looks like for us. So there's mom and Ethan with giant ice cream cones. I believe that was at Six Flags. Then there's Izzy and I with huge funnel cakes at Disney's Hollywood Studios. That thing was the size of my head. And then there's me and Ethan building droids at Galaxy's Edge, also in Hollywood Studios. And my personal favorite, a photograph of us with the dinosaur that we convinced him to pull over and let us take a picture by. Something that, on a regular day, he would never agree to. But then we get home, right? And we're all 20 pounds heavier than when we left. And we have to take out a loan for next week's groceries. It's not that extreme. My parents are always careful not to overdo it, but the big drawback to Vacation Dad is that it is a bummer coming home. (laughs) I love my house and I love my family, but when you take me to Disney for two weeks, there is no way on earth that I am coming home and I'm going to be happy about it. (laughs) I miss the ice cream for dinner and the $30 turkey legs as big as my head because there are consequences when we overindulge in grace, just like there are when we overindulge in speaking truth. Now, this is not me trying to silence Vacation Dad. I love Vacation Dad. But it is a good illustration of what happens when we show too much grace. Because nobody really thinks that's possible. But I'm here to tell you that it surely is. Showing too much grace looks like the person who is so concerned with what everyone around them thinks that they put aside their own health or beliefs to make sure everyone else in the room is pleased. It's the person who, instead of enjoying their Thanksgiving dinner with their family, is spending all day perfecting it in the kitchen. It's the person who, instead of leaving a consistently abusive partner, devotes themselves to trying to save that person. It's vacation dad who lets me bring a dozen extra Fazoli's breadsticks back to the hotel, (laughs) which we all know are not going to survive the night. Of course there are consequences to truthless grace, If there are consequences to graceless truth, then it has to work both ways. So which is God? Is the God that we serve truthful God? Or is he graceful God? 
He's both. In John 8, there's a story about a woman who commits adultery. I was listening to Steve preaching on Easter, and he, he read this story, started using it, and I was like, dude, that's my text. <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to be preaching on. And you use it on Easter Sunday. But it's okay, because it's a really good story, and I'm still going to use it, because Steve told me to. <laughs> John 8, 1 through 6. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman caught in the act of adultery This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This story starts with the Pharisees making the same exact mistake that Jonah made. Except in their case, it's not a mistake. They bring in this woman accused of adultery and they try to trap Jesus into speaking either a solution of grace or a solution of truth. And they know what they're going to do. In this story, the actions of the Pharisees actually don't line up with the laws of the time period. And I love getting into the history of the Bible. So here we go. Hopefully briefly, but no promises. So at the time that these events took place, a couple things had to happen in order for this woman to be accused of adultery. Firstly, there would have been no reason to specifically bring this woman before Jesus in front of all these people. So right from the start, we're like, no, Jesus, it's a trap. (laughs) Second, the law required that to accuse anyone of adultery, two witnesses had to be present. Furthermore, if the witnesses had been present prior to the actual sin being committed, They were expected to stop the action from happening, which obviously the Pharisees did not do because it's a trap. Also, the execution of this trial doesn't make any sense because the law required that a woman caught cheating on her her fiancé should be stoned to death along with the lover and that a woman caught cheating on her husband was to be specifically strangled to death. And since there's no man present in this story, and they want to stone the woman and not strangle her, we can conclude what? It's a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) Yes, it is. So we already know that the Pharisees are bringing bad vibes to the barbecue, okay? (laughs) John 8, 6 through 9. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard it began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. There he is, graceful God in the flesh. Jesus creates this public demonstration of grace, and so he meets the first of the Pharisees' expectations by providing a graceful solution. But listen to what he does next. John 8, 10 through 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
God doesn't need to be graceful God or truthful God. He's graceful God and truthful God. Because grace and truth are best when delivered as a package deal. And I want you to take notice of something. Jesus shows this woman grace first. And then he shows her the truth. Because a harsh truth like that can be spoken out of love, but it won't come across that way without the reassurance that God forgives us. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And so I challenge you to seek to live your life the same way. Maybe a fellow coworker has been showing up late every day for weeks. It's okay to explain to them why that's a problem, but don't forget to do it in a loving way. Or maybe your kid is making bad choices at school. It's okay to show them grace and maybe soften the punishment or take it away completely, but don't forget to explain to them why what they did was wrong. Or maybe your teenager mistakes the cumin for cinnamon. <laughs> it's okay to not eat the muffin, but don't, thank, don't forget to thank him for trying. <laughs> I've heard it said, and they're going to throw this up on the screen for you. When we offend everybody, we've shown too much truth and not enough grace. But when we offend nobody, we've shown too much grace and not enough truth. Each will do more harm than good on its own. But as God shows us time and time again, together, grace and truth bring salvation. One of the best examples of God showing both truth and grace at once is Christ's crucifixion. When Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives before his trial, we see that the truth of what he's about to do is scary and uncomfortable for him. The truth that he will die is hard to hear. Luke 22, 42 through 44. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. But Jesus knew that he was bringing the grace of God to us through his death and resurrection. And that's why we still take communion today. So as the servers come around with trays and we take our emblems with the bread representing Jesus' body and the juice representing his blood, Take a moment and thank God for his grace and for his truth. Thank him that he's the truthful God and that he's great, graceful God. Thank him that he sent his one and only son with a message of truth and grace for us to hear so that we may know who our God is, truthful and full of grace. Take a moment and then I'll come back up and we'll receive our communion together. His body broken for us. And his blood poured out for us. Well, thanks for having me. <clears throat> Thank you. That felt really good. I really enjoyed that. I'm definitely going to keep doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, come back next week uh, and hear Steve preach about God's discipline and God's love. 
I know nothing about that message, but he'll preach it next Sunday, so you better come back to hear it. Um, Will you stand? We're going to do one last song.